When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host Heather Tesco and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode 85. It's another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times on Mary Queen of Scots. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. You can discover lots of great new podcasts at agorapodcastnetwork.com. The Agora Podcast of the month is Tiny Vampires. Tiny Vampires is a show about insects that transmit disease and the scientists that are fighting them. So if you are interested in mosquitoes and Zika and diseases, this is a really good one for you. Learn more at tinyvampires.com. Also, I need to thank a very special group of people right now, the lovely Patreon supporters of this podcast. This show is independent. I do it myself, always have, and as such, I am beholden only to you, the listeners. And so, I ask for your support through Patreon. Those who signed up at the $3 an episode or higher level will get a tutor tutor planner in November as a thank you gift. And if you missed that promotion, don't worry, I'm working on another super cool one. And I'm always figuring out new ways to thank the show's patrons. So let me thank them here all right now. They are Kathy, Jurgen, Kendra, Anne Boleyn, also known as Jessica, which makes me smile every time I see it. Or maybe it's Jessica, also known as Anne Boleyn. Either way, Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judith, Ian, Laura, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Candice, Rebecca, Al, and Shandor. If you would like to join this very intelligent group of people, you can get all the links on the website at englandcast.com. So now let me introduce you to Melita Thomas. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. What can you tell us Mary Queen of Scots? She had such a tumultuous life, and it's so hard to just try to talk about everything in just a couple of minutes because there was so much. Um, but what can you tell us of like kind of the highlights of her life just to get us started? 
she was uh, she was a queen in her cradle. Her father died when she was uh, about a week old, so there was no time in her life when she could remember not being a queen. And she was actually the first woman to be a queen in in the British Isles, pre, um, predating both her cousins Mary and Elizabeth. As well as being queen of Scotland, she was queen consort of France, and there were a lot of people who thought she actually ought to be queen of England as well. So she had a very exalted idea of her own status as a queen. I think the most the most fascinating thing about her is well is partly the the level of fascination she still exerts after 500 years. People debate furiously as to whether she was um uh, very badly treated a martyr um uh, wrongly accused of murder and adultery or whether in fact the suggestions the accusations at the time that she uh was behind the assassination of her husband so that she could marry her lover the debate continues to rage. I think she was one of those people who had personal charisma, which is something that you can't, you can't put your finger on. You can't see it in the paintings of her because she was said to be, you know, very beautiful, but the paintings, I mean, standards of good looks change, but she doesn't seem anything special to modernize. But people talked of her as enchanting and charming and full of full of grace, and so, so that she must have had that whole personal aura that that very very occasionally people have, which made people uh, totally devoted to her. Uh, there weren't many people who weren't charmed by her, but there were a few, and perhaps perhaps because she was used to charming everybody, she she thought she could do it all the time, and and perhaps didn't pay enough attention to some of the other political skills that she perhaps failed to develop as as well as she might have done. So very early on at the start of her life, she became queen when she was, what, six days old. And it looked as if she was going to lead a, a really kind of normal life and go to France and be queen there. And then her husband died and it all kind of started to go wrong for her. In in some ways it went wrong almost from the day she was born because Scotland was was a bone of contention between England and France. Both countries were bigger and more powerful and they both wanted to control Scotland. Scotland and France had been in alliance for uh, 300 years. You know, there were many Scots people who wanted to continue that alliance and France was really only interested in Scotland. Uh, to provide a threat to England if England were to invade France. So that that was the idea. If England invaded France, then uh, France would pay the Scots to invade England. And that that was kind of the deal. But in the 1540s, when Mary was born, England, in the person of Henry VIII, thought that uh, a young female queen was the best opportunity he would ever have to dominate Scotland. And he wanted Mary brought to England and married to his son, Edward. And there were a number of Scots people who thought this was actually a good plan as the Reformation was beginning to unfold in Scotland. But there were an awful lot who preferred the uh, the old French alliance. So throughout Mary's childhood, there, there was a, a ongoing war. They, they called it the War of the Rough Wooings. And the south of Scotland was devastated. Edinburgh was burnt. And, you know, it was huge, huge misery. And the upshot was that it was agreed by most of the Scots, that Mary would be safer in France. So she was sent there when she was only five years old and, and brought up and, and, and married the, the young king, Francois. But he died young. Uh, she, they'd only been married not, not even 18 months, I don't think. So after a brief hiatus, which one of her biographers thinks was 
one of the most damaging things she ever did, not not returning to Scotland immediately that she was widowed, uh, suggested that Mary was not actually that interested in Scotland and was far more interested in either being Queen of France or in promoting her claims to the throne of England. But at any rate, she did come back after 18 months and took up rule. But she was she was only 18. And I think we have to bear in mind that some of the mistakes she made, you know, how many of us would be wiser at, at the age that she was. Can you walk me through for people who aren't familiar with her lineage, where her claim to the English throne comes from and why she started to proclaim herself potentially. And a lot of that was down to her relatives kind of pushing that on her in France, wasn't it? Or can you tell me? Yeah, it's, it certainly was her father-in-law, Henry II of France, who, who pushed the claim, because obviously if he had the legitimate Queen of England in his hands, that would open up a whole world of possibilities to him. So, the claim came from Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, had uh, various children, amongst whom were Henry VIII of England and Margaret, who married King James IV of Scotland. James IV had, and Margaret Tudor had a son, James V, who married twice, and by his second Marie of Guise, he had Mary. They had had two little boys who very sadly died within a few days of each other which is uh, obviously heartbreaking for the parents. So therefore, Mary was the great niece of Henry VIII. Now, Henry, as we know, had all sorts of matrimonial escapades, uh, which resulted in uh, three children who survived him. He, he had another illegitimate son who, who died young. Now, Edward VI was generally reckoned to be a legitimate child and a male. So no no contest there about him inheriting the throne. His Henry's older daughter, Mary, was viewed by the vast majority of people as legitimate, although Henry had claimed that his marriage to her mother was, was illegal and that Mary was therefore illegitimate, and she was only permitted to inherit the throne by act of parliament. Then Henry's third child, Elizabeth, Catholics thought was illegitimate. So therefore, when Queen Mary of England died, her nearest adult heir was uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. And she would have been considered, Elizabeth would have been considered illegitimate because when she was born, Catherine of Aragon was still alive, right? That's like the key part that makes her. Okay. So there she is. And she's, didn't she at one point have to actually, or they, they, had her put the, the um, coat of arms match England with hers. And, and she was kind of pushing it for a, a while there, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. So what happened when Mary I of England died, Henry II of France immediately um, proclaimed that his daughter-in-law, Mary Queen of Scots, was was Queen of England. And yes, her, the royal arms of England were quartered with Mary's own, and it was engraved on her plate and so forth. And this became a real bone of contention and was probably one of the things, again, that led to much more trouble for, for Mary in, in, in the future. Because when her, when her husband dies, and once he had died, Mary stopped overtly claiming the crown of England. So, you know, one can question whether she actually thought that it had been a good idea or whether she really believed that she had those claims at that time. She was all she ever demanded personally from Elizabeth that she should was that she should be acknowledged as Elizabeth's heir. The the very fact that the claim had been made made a number of um, Elizabeth's ministers who were Protestants very, very wary of Mary. Uh, And the. 
there was a treaty that had been agreed between the Scottish lords and the English government uh, in, in a very complex civil war that was being fought while Mary was still in France. And by this treaty, the Treaty of Edinburgh, it was they they wanted Mary to agree that she was not the rightful Queen of England. And Mary refused to ratify the treaty unless Elizabeth agreed that she was the legitimate heir. So it all got very um, argumentative and that that remained a bone of contention. But Mary herself was content to be considered the heir, but she did pursue a policy that was very much geared towards that recognition, perhaps to the exclusion of other more sensible policies that she might have pursued. So, okay, so there she is in France, her husband dies, she's back in Scotland. And can you just kind of give us the synopsis of what the situation was like that she found herself in in Scotland and then kind of what happened with her personal decisions that she... Well, she, she came back to a Scotland that had, in, in her absence and during this period that this uh, historian Dr. Wormold thinks was so vital, uh, uh, the Scottish Parliament had passed an act that made prost- Protestantism the official religion of Scotland. Now, Mary herself was a Catholic, and although in her youth uh, she doesn't seem to have been you know, more than conventionally religious, like most people of the time, uh, she became more, more interested in religion as she grew older. Uh, she agreed with the, the Protestant lords, who were effectively in control of Scotland, that she would return from France. She wouldn't interfere with um, Protestants as uh, the Protestantism as the official faith of Scotland, provided she personally could continue her Catholic worship. And that was agreed. And she was true to her word. She never at any time tried to reinstate Catholicism, even though there were plenty of uh, people who would have supported it, both in Scotland and abroad. And every effort to in, ensure that the Protestant Church um, flourished in Scotland. So she came back, and her her main supporter at that time was her illegitimate half brother, uh, Lord James Stuart, who, whom she afterwards made Earl of Murray. Now he was he was a um, a very talented politician, Murray, and. Uh, she was, as I said before, considered attractive and charming, and many people became very um, infatuated with her as a, as a personality. And she and her brother, half brother, got on well, and all all went quite smoothly. She perhaps put more trust in her half brother than he necessarily merited. Uh, she became involved in factional fighting that really, when you stand back, was more for his benefit than for the benefit of the crown. But then. As time passed, she wanted to exert her own authority more. And she also wanted to marry because she wanted, like every uh, monarch, she needed to leave an heir. And her choice, uh, she had, a, there were, the, the difficulties were uh, choosing a right husband without aggravating the Queen of England because Mary's policy was still her desire to be acknowledged as Elizabeth's heir. But all Elizabeth would do was tell her who she couldn't marry, she wouldn't tell her who she could marry or who the English would approve of. And eventually Mary got tired of this and she married her cousin, Lord Henry Stuart, uh, Lord Darnley, who was uh, another descendant of Henry VII, again, the complicated uh, Tudor-Stuart family tree. Now, a lot of her nobles disliked Darnley, in particular her half-brother Murray. 
and very quickly after marrying Mary, um, Mary realised that she'd made a huge mistake because Darnley was, uh, well, it's sad to say, but the, the the poor man, he died when he was 21 and there is not a single soul who's ever said a good word about him apart from his mother. He was, you know, maybe he would have grown out of it, but at, but at 19, 20, he was spoilt. He was arrogant. He was, he treated Mary very disrespectfully. He demanded all the um, trappings of power, but didn't really want to do any work. He drank heavily. He humiliated her by, you know, consorting with uh, prostitutes. It was a, you know, it was a terrible um, decision, even though on paper, it looked quite good. Uh, So, I mean, the culmination of their their appalling relationship was when he got involved in a in a plot to assassinate her secretary. Then, so every everybody disliked Darnley. Um, he was he was trouble. He was um, everybody w- w- wanted to see the back of him. And a group of uh, nobles and Mary they discussed the problem of Darnley. And Mary was assured by her nobles that they would find a way out of the situation. Mary said to them that yes, she she wanted she wanted to find her way out of the marriage with Darnley. She didn't want her honour impugned in any way, and she and Darnley had had a child, so she didn't want any suggestion that the marriage hadn't been um, valid because it would affect the the legitimacy of her of her son. So she left them to cook up an idea to get rid of him without impugning her honour. Now, whether she herself thought this through or whether, you know, it's difficult to imagine what anybody could have had in mind other than um, assassination. But Mary said that she had no no thought of such a thing. Anyway, the, the upshot was that uh, there was an explosion in Darnley's house and he was found dead in the garden, probably strangled. In fact, he'd, he'd tried to escape. You know, and debate has raged for centuries as to whether Mary actually was involved, uh, whether it was a complete shock and surprise to her. The And, it, you know, it's very hard to know because you can th- you think, I, I mean, I've been debating it in my own mind, you think, okay, if she knew that they were going to murder, murder Darnley and, you know, there was a whole group of them in it, why didn't she act as any other sensible monarch would have done? As Elizabeth wrote to her urgently, her mother-in-law, Catherine de' Medici, wrote to her urgently and said, find the perpetrators, hang the perpetrators. And, you know, it, it, it sounds it sounds harsh, but there were plenty of other monarchs who'd, you know, dispatched a few unlucky underlings and, you know, rounded up a few um, innocent people and hanged them and, and, and pinned the blame on them. So if she was involved, why didn't she do that? You know, find find a scapegoat. But on the other hand, if she wasn't involved, again, she made no real efforts to actually find the perpetrators. And it was very, very soon decided that the the main perpetrator was the Earl of Bothwell, who was distinctly unpopular with some of his fellow fellow nobles. But, you know, so it's possible that the rest of them had got together and decided that he was going to be the fall guy. You know, the, the whole thing, it's very, very hard to disentangle why Mary didn't proceed against Bothwell. And the explanation that was given at the time was that she and Bothwell were in it together and that they were lovers. But there doesn't really seem to be any contemporary evidence that is, um, you know, that can't be questioned that that she that she and Bothwell were having any kind of relationship at that time. So, you know, the whole thing's a mystery. 
But the you know matters got worse because as as Mary paid little attention to actually getting um, finding the finding the murderers, a private prosecution was actually brought by Darnley's father, the Earl of Lennox, against Bothwell, who um, turned up with a large body of men, frightened Lennox's men off. So Lennox didn't turn up to the trial, and Bothwell was acquitted. And the next thing we know is uh, Bothwell abducted Mary, and again. You know, people said, "Was she in it? Did she, uh, you know, was she was she was she part of it, or was it a shock and a surprise to her?" He took her off to Dunbar Castle, and either he raped her or they, you know, continued their love affair. The whole thing just, no matter, how, and which is why, of course, after five hundred years, people still debate it because it's very difficult to find a logical answer that covers everything that that happened at any rate because she so she then married Bothwell and that was that was the end now her her reason that she gave for marrying him was that he produced a bond which had been signed by many of her nobles saying that they would be very happy if she married Bothwell but again you you've got to ask the question why did she accept that why didn't she think about it and say no this man has forced me I'll have him you know you can't imagine Elizabeth letting somebody rape her and not ending up in a bad way, can you? It, very strange. However, she and Bo- she decided to marry Bothwell for good or bad reasons, and I've wondered whether she had Stockholm syndrome. You know that that the thing that they've identified that hostages sometimes get—they start to identify with their captor and are almost mesmerised by them. Perhaps, perhaps that's what happened to Mary. I mean, it's a, 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 a about ten percent of hostages develop it, so she may have been one of them. Anyway, the two of them, they, they raised an army and they confronted the nobles who now were in open revolt at, at Carberry Hill. But rather than fighting, Mary agreed that she would surrender if Bothwell had a, had a safe conduct to leave the country. And she adamantly refused to hand him over, which, again, if, you know, if he had raped and abducted her, you'd think she'd be glad to do. But, you know, she didn't. Anyway, she thought that by by uh, surrendering to the Lords, she would be reinstated and everything would carry on as normal. But they had very different ideas. They clapped her in a castle at Lochleven and uh, she was in appalling health uh, by this stage. She, she had a miscarriage. She was depressed. She was ill and, you know, not surprising. And she was, you know, physically bullied and terrorised into abdicating. She got better and clever and charming as ever. She managed to persuade... Um, the 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 brothers of the man who owned the castle to to help her escape. So you know she she really did have a silver tongue. Uh, raised another army and uh, but was on, on her way to Dumbarton Castle. Now had she reached Dumbarton Castle in Glasgow, the whole thing would have been very very different because uh, Dumbarton was impregnable. It's only you know it, it's the oldest um, continuously inhabited fortress in the British Isles, dates from the 500s, and has never. Or no, I think it, it fell twice to the Vikings. I think, but other than that, you know, you pretty much once you're in there, you're safe. But she was intercepted by Murray and and his army and heavily defeated at the Battle of Langside. Although she had more men, uh, she didn't have such good commanders. And then. She made another mistake. Instead of um, going to ground in the highlands and perhaps raising another army, certainly a a possibility, or even going back to France, um, she elected to go to England. And so then she becomes Elizabeth's. I can imagine Elizabeth must have thought, 
like what luck that this is this is blown up on my shore. Talk to me a little bit about the relationship between her and Elizabeth, because in some ways it seems like Elizabeth was insecure and jealous of her. Like the reports that she would ask things like who's prettier and who's taller and who's the better dancer and things like that of the, the ambassador. Um, And at the same time, she held so much, she held Mary's life in her hands then as it turned out. Uh, and they they never actually met, but they exchanged letters. So tell me a little bit about kind of how that relationship it's, went. Yeah, it's a very interesting one. Yeah, despite all of the Hollywood efforts to um, to to envisage a meeting, it it never did occur. Mary had wanted a meeting since she returned to Scotland, and at one time it did look as though Elizabeth would agree, but. Uh, Elizabeth very often appeared to agree to things that never actually um, never actually happened. Uh, yeah, you're right. She was very jealous of um, or envious of Mary's. I mean, as I mentioned before, Mary was considered exceptionally attractive and beautiful and all those things. And Elizabeth, and clearly was attractive uh, to to a degree, but she was she was very vain of her appearance, and she certainly never wanted to hear that uh, the Queen of Scots was better looking than her. Uh, Mary also had something that Elizabeth didn't have, which was a much, which was a more secure position as a queen, because as we were discussing before, you know, there were many people who thought Elizabeth was illegitimate. So there was always a fundamental insecurity in Elizabeth's claim to her throne, which uh, was not the case for Mary. No one could ever question Mary's right to be Queen of Scotland. And then Elizabeth, of course, she, although in some ways it was lucky for her that, and probably luckier that she came, that Mary came to England and went to France, but it did put Elizabeth in a very difficult position because she couldn't really be seen to be supporting rebels against a lawful monarch. As soon as you start um, supporting rebels against one monarch, you, you're just opening the door to um, the same thing happening to you. So throughout this whole period, Elizabeth never wanted to admit that, you know, that the the, uh, nobles of Scotland had been right to depose Mary. But at the same time, she preferred a a Scottish government led by Murray and the subsequent regents because it was um, it was more formally Protestant, although, as I said before, Mary had never interfered with religion in Scotland. And of course, Elizabeth could play on the insecurities of a, you know, a, a scarcely legitimate government to to control what was going on in Scotland much more. So she she was very much in a cleft stick about uh, being seen to support rebels, and the way she dealt with it was to effectively say, well, she could she couldn't possibly put Mary back on her throne until Mary had demonstrated that she was innocent of these charges of murder and adultery. So what happened, uh, Elizabeth set up a commission to investigate the charges. And after a good deal of toing and froing and discussion and the appearance of those um, uh, documents known as the casket letters, which may or may not have been forgeries, but appeared to implicate Mary in in the assassination, uh, Elizabeth decided that nothing had been proved against her. But on the other hand, no, she couldn't really be said to have completely exonerated herself. So um, while Elizabeth thought about what to do, Mary was her honoured guest. And that's what happened. So she wasn't going to help Mary get back to Scotland, but she wasn't going to send Mary back 
hand, you know, ha um, hand and foot tied to the Scots government who would have executed her. So there was Mary for 19 years, drifting about uh, the castles of the Midlands under increasingly severe um, restrictions as she tried to escape. And, you know, who can blame her? She did warn Elizabeth. She said, if you if you hold me, I, I will, you know, you have no right to hold me. I'm a sovereign queen. I'm not a subject of England. And I will do everything I can to, to escape. And she... She, which it's it's interesting because we talked about her in the context of earlier Bess of Hardwick and how her being there impacted their marriage, and it's just interesting all the different people who were impacted by what was happening with Mary Queen of Scots, and um, it just it it's just an interesting kind of side effect of it that she sort of destroyed Bess of Hardwick's marriage, I suppose. She did, yeah. Poor old the poor old Earl of Shrewsbury. He was you know he was driven demented by it. Um, and Elizabeth was never very keen on handing over the money, but she was determined that Mary had to be kept quite quite strictly, partly because Mary had already shown that um, she could talk her way out of uh, quite a few situations. Uh, and, you know, there was a great deal of concern that she would... Um, she would talk her way out of out of one of uh, Elizabeth's castles as well, and and there were as time passed, you know, there were in the Catholic Protestant divide in England became stronger. Uh, in 1569, the Earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland rose up against Elizabeth and tried to uh, reinstate um, the, the Catholic religion. Uh, the Pope, having uh, not said anything about Elizabeth really in the 1560s, then excommunicated her and freed her Catholic subjects from allegiance to her. And all of this um, made in, perhaps not Elizabeth herself so much, but certainly her ministers absolutely paranoid. Her chief ministers, Cecil and Walsingham, were, were Puritans. Certainly Walsingham was, perhaps Cecil wasn't quite a Puritan, but and they were, you know, the the very idea of a Catholic queen just made their hair stand on end. So they assumed she was behind every Catholic plot. And in a way, the thought became father to the deed because they, they uh, Walsingham certainly um, entrapped Mary. Um, the whole, the, the final plot, which uh, came at the end, the Babington plot, uh, it was, you know, very largely set up by Walsingham. I mean, clearly you can't, inveigle somebody into treason who isn't isn't interested but you know there, there was definite entrapment there but they thought they were doing the right thing I suppose and so then she was executed and mm -hmm. that whole it was just such a, a massive thing to have one queen execute another queen uh, and it really plagued on Elizabeth I read something that when she died, she was still like her last words were, you know, Mary or something like that. Um, like kind of, can you talk about the decision of how they chose to execute her and how that played out and then kind of the, the lasting effects of it? I mean, it kind of was the pretense that Philip used to invade with the Spanish Armada then too, right? So, well, yeah, that was certainly part of, and that was part of the reason why this, why, relationships between England and Spain deteriorated quite seriously in the 1580s. In the earlier years of Elizabeth's reign, Philip and uh, was inclined to maintain the traditional Anglo-Spanish 
alliance against the, the, the Scottish-French alliance. So the, sort of the two sides sort of drew up like that. But England became involved, not necessarily with Elizabeth's wholehearted approval, but uh, she was drawn into supporting uh, the rebels in the Netherlands. Now, Elizabeth, by and large, was more interested in supporting her fellow monarchs and supporting her co-religionists. But she she was sort of driven into a position where she had to give support to the Protestants of the Netherlands against the Spanish, uh, their Spanish overlord, King, King Philip. And so, again, the, the whole Catholic Protestant thing started to get more and more polarised. Uh, so uh, Philip, obviously angry at Elizabeth's interference in the Netherlands, now started to think that actually, you know, he needed to interfere in England and potentially put uh, Mary on the throne. So that was, that was part of the lead up to the Spanish invasion in 1588 and the whole, the, the plethora of plots that I either real or manufactured that uh, occurred in the 1580s. Uh, so Elizabeth was persuaded eventually that as long as Mary lived, these plots would continue because with with Mary dead, her, her heir would then be Mary's son, James of Scotland, who had been brought up as a Protestant. So Elizabeth was eventually persuaded um, that Mary should die. I mean, probably the last straw was uh, a letter that a letter that was written to Mary and smuggled in in a beer barrel to, to the house where she was staying and living in, you know, being held at Chartley in Staffordshire. Now, Walsingham knew everything that was going in and everything that was going out because he was, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the whole thing was a setup. And Mary received a letter saying that uh, six gentlemen would assassinate Elizabeth and they would then come and free her and she would have a glorious future as Queen of England. And Mary, in her response to this letter, did not say, um, do not assassinate Elizabeth. She didn't explicitly say, go ahead and do it. But the way she worded her letter, it was clear that she accepted that that was what was going to happen. So once Walsingham had this letter in his hand and his secretary drew a little gallows on it when he received it, because effectively Mary had hanged herself, uh, they uh, persuaded Mary, uh, Elizabeth that uh, the Queen should be tried uh, she was uh, tried and found guilty, and it was a while before Elizabeth could bring herself to sign the death warrant. Because once again, as you say, once once a monarch's killed another monarch, you know you've opened the floodgates. Elizabeth, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. Interesting. And then uh, the story of Mary Queen of Scots when she died in her her tiny little puppy. Yeah. Yes, mm. hiding under her skirts. Yes. Yeah, she, I mean, she died very bravely. Um, um, as I said before, she was she didn't, whilst she was in Scotland, show a lot of interest in religion other than her personal faith. But she seemed to become more genuinely religious as she grew older. And uh, and she, you know, she could have her, her life would have been a lot easier had she, if she'd converted to Protestantism when she went to Scotland, things might have turned out very differently. But she was um, she wouldn't do that, and. By the end, she did see herself as a as a martyr for her religion. So where can we learn more about her? Well, there are so many books and uh, about about Mary and so much debate. And the, the most well-known or the uh, of the, you know, the great biographies of her is by uh, Lady Antonia Fraser, Mary Queen of Scots. 
it's a little um it's a little dated now in some ways some of the the sort of gender politics we we would be surprised by now but i mean it is a very very comprehensive and detailed work uh dr jenny wormold a very well-known scottish historian has written a really or wrote um in in the late uh, i think the late 80s so about 20 years after antonia fraser uh, a book called um, Mary Queen of Scots, a, a study in failure. And it's her contention that um, Mary was a completely useless queen, regardless of whether she had anything to do with um, Darnley's murder. You know, she made so many other mistakes that um, she brought it on herself. So it's an interesting um, breath of fresh air compared with some of the the very positive uh, biographies. Dr. Linda Porter's Crown of Thistles is excellent. Very, uh, very nice, very balanced um, very beautifully written. So highly recommend that one. Uh, Rosalind Marshall, who's a Scots historian, she's written um, a rather nice one about uh, Queen Mary's women, it's called. And it's little pen portraits as well of Mary herself, of her mother, Marie of Guise, her grandmother, Antoinette of Bourbon, um, her mother-in-law, uh, Margaret Lennox. So, so that's very interesting for some background. And there are uh, numerous, numerous um, clubs and societies and all the rest of it who talk about Mary Queen of Scots. And when you go to Scotland, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's tart and it's short red and it's Mary Queen of Scots. She is uh, uh, perhaps more popular there now than she was um, in the 1560s. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to explain her to us. And she's such a such an interesting person. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I still can't decide about her what, I, I mean, whether she was guilty or whether she was not guilty. But um, no, it's, but actually, I think, I think there is a very nice quote that perhaps to end on, which um, I will, this was written by, by one of Cecil's men who went to visit her. And they were all terrified that she would, um, you know, say, char- charm everybody into, into letting her go. Anyway, this, this chat and this was um in the 1570s or early 80s she has withal an alluring grace a pretty scotch accent and a searching wit clouded with mildness fame might move some to relieve her and glory joined with gain might stir others to adventure much for her sake thank you again to melita thomas for taking the time to tell us about mary queen of scots for more information go to tudortimes.co.uk or you can also see the resources available on the Englandcast site at englandcast.com. Remember, if you like this show, the biggest way you can help it is to leave a review on iTunes. That's the best thing you can do, and it's free. So leave a review on iTunes, or if you have any Tudor-loving friends, you can also tell them about it. Chances are they probably haven't heard about it, so go on and tell your friends. The next episode in about two weeks is going to be the second episode on food and table manners, And then we are getting into Reformation Month, which is in October. It's to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses. I'm doing a lot of episodes on the Henrican Reformation and ecclesiastical history in England. So if you're a nerd like me, you will love it. That's October. Talk with you again soon. Bye-bye. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. 
Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 